Hey, Politicology Plus, how you doing? We've missed you. Good to talk to you again. Got a whole bunch of people listening in from the main show today because we're releasing this episode to the public. And we wanted to give everybody a taste of what the Politicology Plus community gets on a regular basis, at least once a week. So to everybody listening in who's not a Politicology Plus subscriber, if you want more content like this and extra episodes, bonus conversations, strategy sessions over time, head over to politicology.com slash plus to subscribe today. On with the show. Hello, Politicology Plus. It's too bad we didn't get into any significant issues today. <laughs> People must have been bored. <laughs> uh, I knew this was going to be good, but this even surpassed my own expectations. What, what were you going to say? Um, that how we ended on such a positive oh. note, right? Not doom and gloom at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe there's some good political news out there in the world, but I haven't seen it. Last <laughs> week, The Economist, moving right along, published a piece by James Bennett called When the Times Lost Its Way. So James Bennett ran opinion at The New York Times from 2016 to 2020 when he was pushed out after publishing an op-ed written by Senator Tom Cotton. Bennett had also been The Times' Jerusalem bureau chief, White House correspondent, and Detroit bureau chief. He wrote about the skyrocketing subscriptions after Donald Trump's election and the internal pressure to placate liberal-leaning readers by confirming their worldviews. He wrote, quote, The Times was slow to break it to its readers that there was less to Trump's ties to Russia than they were hoping and more to Hunter Biden's laptop that Trump might be right that COVID came from a Chinese lab, a view which has since been quite uh, vindicated, that that's a very plausible theory. He also wrote about the erosion of trust in journalists' credibility as the arbiters of truth. Here's what he said. As preoccupied as it is with the question of why so many Americans have lost trust in it, the Times is failing to face up to one crucial reason, that it has lost faith in Americans too. The dominant theme of the piece is a shift from a liberal bias to an illiberal one. And he lamented the fact that debate is often stifled in favor of a dominant narrative and the intolerance toward differing opinions, even within the left-leaning spectrum. He criticized the Times for not living up to their motto of working without fear or favor. Quote, I think many Times staff have little idea how closed their world has become or how far they are from fulfilling their compact with readers to show the world without fear or favor. And sometimes the bias was explicit. One newsroom editor told me that because I was publishing more conservatives, he felt he needed to push his own department further to the left. The newsroom indulged in their biases as a reaction to the opinion section. Let me repeat that. For context, at the New York Times, the opinion department and the newsroom are so isolated, they're on completely different floors of the building, and they don't talk to each other at all, ever, for a really good reason. There's a firewall between opinion and news at the paper of record. The newsroom indulged in biases, the newsroom, as a reaction to the opinion section, which means when you're reading the news in the New York Times and you're expecting fact-based reporting that has been corrupted with a worldview that, that thinks it needs to react to what the opinion pages are publishing. So you can't even know that what you're getting is straight fact. Uh, this was a 17,000 word piece, I think. Um, uh, I, after I read the first paragraph, I didn't stop until I finished the whole thing. That's how, that's how good I thought it was. There was 
praise by people I disagree with and by people I agree with all over uh, Twitter. The chattering class really went off about it. Um, so Susan, start with you. What did you make of the piece as a whole? All right, so I wasn't going to read the piece because it was 17,000 words. I knew what basically We only sent it to you yesterday. <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm sorry. When it yeah. first published, I yeah. was like, all right, you know, whatever. I got some of the highlights. I'm good. But then I knew we were going to discuss it. So I was like, all right, just do it. You read it? I read the whole thing and I read it slowly, which means I took it in, which is a good thing. And you had to read it slowly to really pay attention to the nuance that the author brought to the conversation that he was presenting the reader. And as someone who has worked you know, with the New York Times for tw almost 25 years, 25 years ago, it would be unimaginable to talk about the opinion page with a newsroom reporter. I mean, they'd kill you. They, it, it was, it, they both took such pride in their independence and never did they talk about subscriptions, <laughs> which is basically revenue. Obviously, things have changed. And what was so disturbing was the people behind the decision to, to run the Tom Cotton piece, everything went as usual protocol. It was fact-checked. It, it, was, it, was, it was done properly. I was surprised to see it, but delighted to see it, even though I could not disagree with it more if I tried. I remember being shocked by it because there is no question that the Times has shifted. It is, it's, I used to read the editorial page because I wanted to get that side. But now I read the, the news section. I'm like, hmm, doesn't, and, and what they choose to cover. So I would say just in real life experience, I have seen the, the absolute change and it is no longer the paper of record. It really isn't. It is now basically, um, uh, you know, left-wing, I hate to say left, but at least, you know, center-left publication. And I will say, for all the talk that people hate about the Wall Street Journal, they have still been able to maintain that, that separation quite well. Yeah, I think that's right. I won't lead the witness. What was your take? I have lots of questions, very leading questions, but... Uh, so, <laughs> first, I, uh, <laughs> I also read the piece I don't think as slowly as Susan, but um, I specifically remember the Tom Cotton piece and how they were talking about it because when it came out at, at the time that it did, and, and it was the same, I vehemently disagreed with it. I was shocked to see it. But when they kicked him out and they talked about the process of of getting the op-ed and placing the op-ed, I was like, well, that's just kind of how it's done. And and I don't, I don't, I don't agree with this whatsoever, but isn't it part of how it all how it all works? The thing that um so, so for me, it, it was, it was absolutely hundred percent after 2016 that I saw this, that the paper, I saw, I was witnessing the paper devolve into this and you saw it from the headlines and you saw it from the editorializing of the, of the stories. I still read the New York times. And the reason is because sometimes I like how they story tell something. And so to me they're but that's the point is that it's no longer a paper of record for me. Reuters and AP and all of the wires Wire are. services. Yeah. yeah. And whereas New York times, I look for you know, yeah, story. and just for the record, I do have my, I still have a subscription. Yes, yeah, same. The because you yeah. have to. Yes, <laughs> you have to. Of course, you have to. And I, I, and I read a, a wide range. And not to bring everything back to this conflict, but since, you know, let's just highlight it since we're living it right now. What the New York Times 
has been pursuing regarding that one missile that fell on Al-Shifa Hospital in the oh, north yeah. at the beginning, the way the New York Times has been pursuing this has been an abomination and an embarrassment to the to the paper because, and and they've doubled down. I don't know if you know this. At the beginning, they were saying, oh, no. You know, the, at the very beginning, they were one of the first to put out a headline saying. Oh, they real fucked up. Yeah, they yeah. really fucked this up. Yeah. And it was like, oh, this was an Israeli missile that fell on a, on a hospital, blah, blah, blah. And and the Israelis were very quick on this. And, and having been on the other side, side, I remember thinking, this is dumb for anybody to question because this is very knowable information. And and everybody, every government knows that. Every And it's not just government. Anybody who works in anything related to satellite and technology, it is very knowable information. And media knows that. So, okay, they started with this headline, then they retracted it and they apologized. And fast forward a week or two later, they came out with yet another one of their own studies to show that they, that they want to question again that it was a missile that had misfired and fell. And when I read it myself, it was so bad and so weak. And I was like, this has already been proven. I mean, we have, this has been proven by imagery coming from Al Jazeera, satellite from uh, communications from Hamas. We know already that this was a a missile that misfired and it happens all the time. And I don't want to go further into this. Well, just so you know, just to that point, but that story, unlike a lot of times story, did not drive the news. Who picked it up? No one picked it up. Oh, right. Nobody. (laughs) That's my point. It's like, no one went, it wasn't like blockbuster New York Times story, like it, it that they do. That was well, the initial, for the me, initial headline did. The yes. initial headline, headline yes. They fucked up, no, I, is, I meant the second story. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It yeah. felt to me when I saw the second one like they had an agenda. They had an agenda on one hand, maybe to save their own ass and say, like, look, you see, we are really, we really weren't totally wrong and you should all still be questioning this and blah, blah, blah. But I read it and I was like, you have an agenda, and and that is so obvious, and it is not good journalism, and it is not fair reporting, and you're just digging yourself further into this hole, and and it's just it's a shame because I love the New York Times, and I exactly. have a subscription, like you said, and I still read the stories, but I can see when it's editorialized. I don't know how ma- if many people can though, and I get this question all the time when I do talks and when at school at uh, is you know well how do you know what you're getting is true and how do you do this for your own show? It's just that I research the hell out of every single well, topic. Back in the day, you used to say on a particular story uh, for me, like, and I worked with Republican candidates, and you'd say sometimes uh, it looks like the reporter may have like just imprinted a little bit of his thumb on the story. And it was noticeable, but you didn't criticize it because it, he, it was not based on anything factual. It could be how many, how many words he gave one side versus the other side or something like that, but never giving an opinion or seeing it through. There was a couple things that stuck out to me about this piece, and we've talked about the cotton piece and the controversy surrounding that. But I think it's worth noting, as Ben outlines in the piece, that even he and probably everybody on the editorial team at the New York Times vehemently disagreed with the position that Cotton was taking mm-hmm. in the piece. And that underscored the need for them to run it because they felt they had a responsibility. And just in case anybody's having trouble remembering, this was the piece in which Tom Cotton was arguing that uh, Donald Trump should call in the National Guard to qu- to quell the riots mm-hmm. uh, in the summer of 2020. And, and their justification for running it was not that they agreed with it, that would be a stupid position, but rather that this was an argument that a majority of Americans actually agreed with at the time, polling showed, and also that he was very likely making in private to the president himself and that it would be better for the discourse if we actually had a big fight about this 
because he's advocating for it in private with the president and that bringing this uh, this really terrifying argument out into the open would be good because it needs to be debated. Um, and it should be noted, the blowback was from staff. The blowback was from staff. That's right. It was right. not. Readers could be right. outraged and they're yeah. used to that, but the staff is what drove this issue. Yeah. Um, so I've noted a few times, and I think that the headline about the Al-Shifa hospital was the first time that my eyes really popped open to just how bad this was, because I didn't want to believe it. I have been a Times reader for many, many years, and especially about like the 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 just like the diligence with which they pursue fact-based reporting in the news section has been so reliable for so long that when I saw this headline and then I began to see the way they're covering the Israel Hamas fight and because I'm very familiar with that region having been to Israel a number of times and very familiar with the conflict the long-standing conflict and then watching them cover it uh and the the not just occasional but repeated and intentional um um sort of uh, laundering of information that they have been doing just is very obvious to me. And so now once I've seen it, I can't unsee it. And now I see it everywhere. And um, I I wanted to read one thing that, um, that also stuck up for this piece where they, um, he, he writes about A.G. Sulzberger, the, uh, the publisher, sort of finding it necessary to reach back several years to another piece that James Bennett had chosen to run for proof that the Times remains willing to publish views that might offend its staff. Um, Sulzberger said, quote, we've published a column by the head of the part of the Taliban that kidnapped one of our own journalists, he told the New Yorker. He's missing the real lesson of that piece as well, Bennett writes. That op-ed was a tough editorial call. Bennett authorized this editorial. He said, it troubles my conscience as publishing Tom Cotton never has. But the reason is not that the writer, Haqqani, uh, the deputy leader of the Taliban kidnapped a Times reporter, David Rode, now of NBC, with whom I covered the Israeli siege of Janine on the West Bank 20 years ago. He would never be afraid of an op-ed. The case against that piece is that Haqqani, who remains on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list, may have killed Americans. It's puzzling. In what moral universe can it be a point of pride to publish a piece by an enemy who may have American blood on his hands and a matter of shame to publish a piece by an American senator arguing for American troops to protect Americans. So this all leads me to this one big question, which I've asked several times to several people on the show so far, which is in the era that we're in now, where it's so difficult to find out what's true, where journalism is sort of under attack, where mainstream media is under attack by people on the right, constantly. But at the same time, these journalistic institutions are themselves squandering the trust that they have held for so long. They're actively undermining their own reputations. Where does this leave ordinary people who need to make, desperately need to make sense of the world as it is changing so fast and as there is so much chaos, especially, and we've talked about going into 2024, how trying a time this is going to be, how can they read news and trust it? You can't. Or you can't trust. So, so, so where does the that problem. leave you? As a, it leaves as you a as fact-finding enterprise. People don't have time to read the way the three of us read. Right. Well, I read at least six publications every morning. That's just before I start my newsletter reading. <laughs> so we don't have time to do that. 
And yet you tell people, well, read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and you'll get a balance of what it, but that doesn't cut it. That's outdated. And even cable was trying to keep their like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. hours, including Fox, by the way, um, more newsy. But it's still, there's always more than a thumbprint on, on, on stories in, in, on all three cable networks. Where it leaves people is they have to go start searching out the information themselves, probably from news wires. But you know what they're not going to do? They're not going to spend hours yeah. getting that information. And I, what's worse is what we're seeing an increase of is people getting their news online. TikTok. And, TikTok mm-hmm. on I should say that through TikTok or or but also Twitter, Instagram and social media and social all this these are their primary news sources. I used to ten years ago I used to laugh that majority there was a poll the majority of the Americans got their news from the Comedy Channel mm-hmm. because they were watching the shows and what have you and they were politicized. But now it's it's completely unfiltered of where you can learn and. I, I don't know. I can, the it, the question cannot be answered in 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 a simple set. Yeah, it can't. But it it's yeah. Um, when you think about advising the the youths who follow you, uh, who watch <laughs> you, what's the best advice you can give them, especially if they're getting most of their information from social media? Which, when you think about what fact based journalism is supposed to be doing, it's you know that old. Um, Metaphor. I don't know where it comes from, but about the the blind people, blind man trying to understand an elephant by feeling it in different places, like the tail and the trunk and the legs. Depending on which part of the elephant you're touching, you are going to make an assessment about, oh, this is what an elephant is, right? But if you're just grabbed onto the trunk, then you think the, an, an elephant is a is a trunk, right? That's basically what social media is. When you're trying to get to the root of a story, you're you're touching one tiny piece of a much bigger picture, and you're extrapolating out to the rest of the world. I, I, and what, what do you, how do you advise the kids? That's my question. So, you know, well, first I had not heard that expression, but I like it. Um, and yes, I completely butchered it. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, 150 million Americans get their news on social media. That's basically half of America. And then, um, 30, something in the 30, 32, 38% of them, it's from TikTok specifically. And, and they're not watching the mainstream news on social media. They're watching other news platforms, random news platforms, random news personalities. And the thing that I always tell people is that you have to find, and maybe I should make a list instead, but I, it's that you have to find the people you trust and the people who can sum it up for you and you can listen to them and you know for fact that, okay, they're just giving you, they're giving you everything for real, for example. So for example, I would, um, let's take this conflict, for example. You can get really good rundowns from Jessica Yellen on social media, but if you're watching only Sean King, then you're thinking, who's not a news personality, he is an activist, then you think that the U.S. and Israel are criminals. And, um, and, but, but people are getting news from him only, right? And so, and yes, again, like you said, it's just a sliver of it, but they don't care. And so the thing I always tell people is like, you're not going to have the time to research the way I research for each of mine. But there are people out there, hopefully me included, where you can get these these bites, these quick bites, where they've done all the research and crammed it into something short for you. And there are a lot of people out there doing it who have some kind of credibility under their belt, whether it's that they worked on the issue or that they were a journalist previously with some kind of mainstream outlet or so on. So that's that's what I always say. But it's a, it's a real crisis. And the, the thing that I find is... And I don't want to conflate too much here, but 
at, 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 there is a piece here where free speech is at a real crossroads right now in the United States. And I myself get very, I, I, you know, I get confused about this and, 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 um, you know, I'm torn myself because I do not believe that there is ever a, a situation, yeah. for example, where yeah. someone on campus should say, and I know you spoke about this on your we podcast, yeah. you know, that, that, that there should be genocide against Jews or any group. I don't think that that should fall under free speech. I don't care. That's inciting violence. That's hate speech in my view. And, and I think Universities, for example, should have a policy on that. Um, but well, they um, do. The problem is that they don't enforce it. Right. <laughs> That's a different question. Yes. Yep. But the re and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to the papers on this, is yeah. that what we've seen on these campuses is, well, when um they censor uh, somebody when it's somebody far to the right, or they censor when when it's something that they feel that they don't agree with, maybe the majority don't agree with. But when it's something like that, yeah. saying genocide against Jews, yeah. then you know, then maybe there oh, are free speech. The context. Free yeah, speech. It's free speech, and and that is absurd and offensive. And when it comes to the papers, you see them doing a little bit of the same thing here because. And and James Bennett, he he was so much more eloquent than me in the, in the oh, quote that you just said. A beautiful writer. Beautiful writer. Beautiful yeah. writer. When he's saying that, that's that is what he's saying. Yeah. Why is it that that this was lauded that having the Hakani, um, and Hakani is a bad bad dude, right? This is yeah. he is <laughs> like pure criminal, sanctioned guy. This is no question about it. And they're giving him a platform. And it was lauded and then criticized as well, of course. Um, but but then when they had this view, then it's automatically pushed back, and it goes back to the point we talked about in your in the in the podcast, which is, it's this right this red. They don't want to. They don't want to anger progressive voice, yeah. and the progressive voice can be very loud. And by the way, so can the, the voice yeah, of the far of right. Yeah. Um, but it's this fear of of that, of that pushback, and it ends up becoming self censorship, or in some cases even pushing an agenda to balance things out. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 awful, and it only contributes to the liar's dividend that we've talked about on this show as well, where people cannot, they don't know anymore what's true, and that that's something that. And I don't that know accrues how. to the benefit of the liar in the first place. Always. Yeah. There's, um, it's, this is, when I mean, we're going to keep talking about this, it's just so frustrating because there are no good answers. And if you're, if you're an ordinary person who's pressed for time, but you want to know the most, I, you know, I, I, I use my mom as an avatar oftentimes and she's busy going about her life and, but still wants to be as informed as possible. And now more than ever, that's a that's an increasingly difficult thing to do because you're you now have to trust uh, one of you know the only news organizations you think are reputable and it, it's just not the case anymore that you're going to get you know the facts and just the facts and I guess the thing to leave people with from this discussion for me and from Bennett's piece is one of the things he highlighted was this trend uh, that journalists now assume that they already have the answers they don't approach their stories and assignments with curiosity. They have their angle from the beginning. And all of the uh, writing and, and, um, and reporting that goes into a story is built around the angle that they've already uh, started with and not a, and he, he does a beautiful job talking about his early in his career, the way he was trained to be curious about everything. Uh, with that very open-minded curiosity, they've, they've got their view and everything's built around that now. So um, that's that's the news world we live in now. I, 
gave an example of that, yeah. that, that, and this is what really shifted my view on the New York Times, even though I remain a subscriber, but back in, it was 2017 or 2018, I don't remember, and the U.S. Uh, pushed a resolution at the U.N. Security Council on North Korea, and it was, an, it was a very tough resolution. It was the toughest that we've ever had, and it was a really great move um, by the Trump administration, and, um, and any foreign policy person whose objective should be able to see that, and every wire came out with their headlines of, U.N. Security Council resolution, U.S.-sponsored resolution on North Korea, strongest so far, does all these things. And the New York Times headline was, U.S. fails to get a U.N. Security Council resolution on North Korea that it had originally drafted. And I was like, what? what? You know that when, when we draft resolutions, everyone knows this, you yeah. put in the whole kitchen sink because you know you're going to negotiate and you're yeah. not going to get everything. That works. So you throw, that, that, everybody yeah. knows that. I, like, yes, and the whole article. Anybody who did model UN knows that. Everybody, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if the whole article was about how the U.S. had a much beefed up, a much more beefed up resolution and lost. It was chipped away along the way and that basically this was a loss. And I was like, how could anybody argue that this is a loss? And in my view, I saw that. I was like, this is a reporter who wanted the Trump administration to fail at this. And there is nothing but good from this. Is This is a resolution agreed to by everyone at the council Wait, to pursue sanctions. Trump did something good? I know. Oof. I know. Can't believe you said that. I know. I'm going to get Oof. hated. I'm going to get Oof. canceled for that. And so, and and that's when I started to view the New York Times differently. It was that article in particular that I was like, this is an, a reporter that had an agenda. But I will end on one yeah. thing that, that yeah, should yeah, make yeah. you feel good, which is that when I talk to the youth, and I talk to a lot of them. <laughs> it, it's so funny because if, <laughs> if there are people out there listening who have not seen My Cousin Vinny, they're missing this whole, like, they're missing the whole thing. That is okay. one of the best movies ever. <laughs> um, when I talk to them, and I talk to a lot of them, not just through my media brand, but as a professor, and I do a lot of talks at schools, I always ask students, high school and college, how do you get your news? Even though we know the yeah. statistics are that they get, they're getting it from social media, all of them around the country, I swear, say that it's from podcasts. Really? I swear. And they all crave. Wow. They are all saying they crave it to be unbiased, just the facts, intellectual, and it, they don't want to be... They they don't want to be ridiculed and they don't yeah. want to be seen as 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 dumb or or that they don't want to dive in and but they but they all that's they wow. all say that to me yeah well so. that's very encouraging mm -hmm. politicology junior a lot a lot of work goes into every episode that we do there's a lot of research a lot of reading a lot of vetting a lot of and and even after the fact a lot of vetting before we publish something so. Like I don't, we I don't feel like we're doing journalism here. That's not what we set out to do. But oftentimes, I feel like the standards we hold ourselves to are higher than what passes in mainstream newsrooms. Yeah. So I feel the same way with my pieces. Same. Really? I do a ton of research, and I always find it because funny. of the responsibility. Yes, I feel a responsibility to share everything, and then, and then. One story I find, I'm like, well, why don't you have this piece of it? And I end up um, grouping it together from multiple yeah. pieces and multiple sources. And I do not consider myself a journalist. I would not say, oh, my world is a journalism. Right. It's not a, it's it's analysis. Yeah. It's to explain it yeah. in a way that makes sense. Um, and uh, and yeah, but yet I find myself, I feel an, a responsibility yeah. to holding myself to the standard. And 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 I don't understand why that's going out the door. Well. Listeners, sound off and tell us what you think. Um, 
I don't know if the economist piece is behind a paywall or not. Well, um, you if if you don't if it's like your first economist oh, article you get of the a month, free one. Okay. then yeah, then you're fine. Yeah. So if you can get access to it, pull it up. Maybe they'll give you a free article. This is really it's a long read, uh, but it's really enjoyable. It's 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 very you know he's a, he's an excellent writer, and you know how some writers you just kind of like the, the reading flows, and you're not really str- it's 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 very well written, um, and I think it's uh, I think it's an essential read. So um, we'll put that in the show notes too. And, um, and again, I mentioned, uh, we now have a, we now have a politicology hotline. <laughs> this is going to be really fun. Um, and the number is 202-455-4558. So when we do our next, um, uh, mailbag, we're going to bring in comments and recordings and, uh, and, we look forward to hearing from you. So I'm going to prank that number <laughs> in, like, in one of my accents. I am 100% going to do it. You'll know it's me, though. <laughs> it's a shame we can't see the wig. I don't know. Okay. Uh, politicology Plus. By the way, uh, we have a dedicated inbox just for you. That is plus at politicology.com. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.